Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the After Show with Mackenzie Stewart and Amy Shannon. We have over 15 years of literary experience between us. Our mission is to educate and assist authors of all writing levels. Hello, Amy. How are you today? I'm doing quite well. Today is my birthday. It is. Happy birthday. I totally forgot. I told you happy birthday this morning, but I totally forgot. Happy birthday. If I were a singer, I would sing it to you, but I'm not. So we're no, going to spare everybody. It's fine. Thank you. <laughs> My phone's been going off all day with Facebook notifications. So. Oh, that is great. Well, happy birthday. And I am Thank so you. excited that we get to share you today, um, you know, on the show. So thank you for being here uh, with us today. Uh, have a very exciting show uh, lined up today. We have Diana Rabb, uh, who is um, on today and really, um, really wanting to talk to her and understand uh, her book and what she wants to promote today. So we're going to turn this over to uh, Diana. Diana, how are you today? I'm good. Thank you. And happy birthday, Shannon. It's one of my best friend's birthday, too. So I think really good people were born on this day. So wishing you all the best. Thank you very much. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Diana, thank you. One of the things that we like to do when um, when we start our show, we like for our guests to tell the audience a little bit about themselves. Um, because, you know, sometimes, you know, in, in, in what we do and how we're writing and what we're creating, sometimes um, people think that, hey, you know what, I do this full time or I do this part time. And so your story can definitely be an inspiration to uh, all who is, um, you know, definitely uh, listening to the show. So uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, sure. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh... So I have been writing probably for close to six decades. Um, I started writing when I was uh, actually seven decades. No, I don't know, whatever, a lot of decades. (laughs) I started writing uh, when I was about six years old, and uh, I went to Sleepaway Camp. My mother bought me some stationery. And then the real turning point in my childhood was when my grandmother uh, took her life in my childhood home and uh, she was looking after me, and so it was the 60s, and my mother really didn't know how to help me cope. So she went out and bought me a journal and told me to write my feelings. And I think that journal really set the stage for my life as a writer just many years later. And so at this point, I've got 13 books of nonfiction, mainly memoir and poetry, I teach writing for healing and confirmation, healing and transformation, and that's what my dissertation was uh, in psychology: is memoir writing for healing and transformation. And so, I think the latest book that we're going to be discussing, the last one that came out, uh, was an imaginary affair, and they're all poems dedicated to Pablo Neruda. Now, the book before this was called Writing for Bliss, which is really a manual on writing memoirs. It's been my most famous book, and 
people that take my workshops love using it as a guide because it offers all the tips for all the genres, poetry, memoir, some fiction, and journal writing and letter writing. So that's me pretty much in a nutshell. I love inspiring people to write, not necessarily for publication, but if that's their dream, then certainly I like to help them with that path. That is wonderful. I I really love to hear how, um, you know, something as simple as pen and paper, a journal, um, for giving that to someone and how they can put their thoughts into um, that. And something like that just just turned your life into, you know, wanting to, um, you know, transform others' lives. And then also in, you know, the lives of your students that you're, that you're teaching. And um, I, too, um, am a um, um, professor uh, in my other job. And it is very exciting when you can see your students, um, you know, evolve from the first time they come into the class until they finish. And so I'm sure that is rewarding as well for you. Yes. Very rewarding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I, I teach in a couple of weeks at uh, at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference. I teach memoir writing, and a few of my students have already published their memoirs. They're going to come talk to the other students who are hoping to publish their memoirs. So, yes, it's indeed very rewarding to watch um, people get to the publication stage. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, that's great. So if you please tell us a little bit about your um, about your latest book, uh, set it up for us. Uh, tell us about <clears throat> um, tell us about the book, um, the inspiration, um, you know, behind it. And um, then we definitely would like for you to give the audience just a sample, uh, because one of the things that we believe that uh, when uh, when that, when our guests read a little bit of their work, uh, our audience connects with the author and their work. So if you can just tell us about the book and, and um, you know, if you have an excerpt or you can definitely talk through um, what you're wanting us to know. Right, sure. Well, the latest book, as I said, is, is called An Imaginary Affair, Poems uh, Whispered to Pablo Neruda. So there's not really an excerpt per se, but there are a few poems I could read. Um, mm-hmm. This is sixth poetry collection. And uh, they are all poems in response to the poems of the Chilean poet Pablo Neruda. Um, The manuscript was originally published um, by Finishing Line Press last year. And when I submitted the manuscript, you know, I wanted to have the names of the poem that I was responding to of Neruda's on the same page, but they ended up just putting it in the back, which is fine just an FYI for anybody that picks up the book, which is available on Amazon or through the publisher. Uh, My inspiration for writing this book is that uh, Pablo Neruda has been a huge inspiration for me as a poet. Uh, I love his passion for life, his worldview. I like how his poetry explores love, death, relationships, and really life simple pleasures. He, he has a lot of odes for, to simple things such as ode to artichoke, ode to wine, which I just find them really uh, very compelling and they really resonate with me. Uh, 
For Neruda, poetry was very nourishing, and I believe uh, it is, it's the nourishing part of poetry that makes us and encourages us to stay in the moment. A few weeks ago, I heard poet Dorian Lau speak, uh, and she said, right where you are, and to me, that is just a reminder to stay present. Um, and just a little bit about Neruda, he had a very traumatic childhood in that his mother died uh, within a month of his birth. And his father remarried and really didn't encourage him to write poetry, didn't didn't really like that he was going to become a poet because his, his love for poetry showed up pretty early in his life. He was somewhere between 9 and 13. And so as a result, he wrote under a pseudonym, which we've come to know as Pablo Neruda, and he published, by the time he was 20, he published uh, two books. Uh, and so his poetry really resonates with me. And I'll, I could start by reading uh, one of the poems um, that I wrote in response to his poems. And so let's see, which one should I start with? I will start with um, Ode to Hot Toddy on a Sick Day, mainly because I was a little bit sick last week. And so and it was still chilly out here in California. So, <laughs> oh, to hot toddy on a sick day. Golden colored hot toddy. Oh, you glisten under tonight's moonlight sliver as my throat aches for you. Your golden light flashes your love. Flecks of lemon rind float about this whiskey, swirled with honey from the bee that loves that buzz that you give me. Never has one night been enough with you, Toddy. Sipping from your cup, Toddy, my soothing drink glittered with your love, tangy with the healing powers of ginger. Silky like my legs, cozy in the blankets, such longing brings me close to you, Toddy. I can drink you over and over again, Toddy, to welcome in or end my day as I ebb from sickness to health with your sweetness amorous glistening. Your hues brighten my night, my delicious love, but more than sipping you, it's your colors that sing the flames in my fever, an abundant and floral fragrance of you and your tipsy presence in my life. <laughs> love it, love it, love it. So there's one. Um, I could read another one called Oat Memory. Mm-hmm. That would be great. He... Um, you know, he wrote a lot of odes. So I, I very often as a memoirist, I write about memory and I talk about memory. I'm kind of obsessed with memory and what we remember and what we don't remember and how two people can experience the same experience and remember it completely differently or not remember yeah. it at all. Um, yeah. So I'm, always, I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm always studying memory and how it works. And... Um, I think one way yeah, to remember... it is interesting. I mean, my father has uh, dementia, so 
Um, he's at a point where he's not recognizing who we are. So I, you know, um, memory is uh, a, a big thing, a big deal to me as well. So I, I'd love to hear your, your ode. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm sorry your dad has dementia. I, uh, you know, I, my mother is, she's 92, but she doesn't have, I don't, I mean, I think she has signs of it, but um, it's really hard when you're not recognized. I just can't imagine that difficulty for you and your family. Um, But uh, here we go. Ode to memory. From the moment I rise in the morning, how I remember absolutely everything, where my slippers are, how to get downstairs, where to find my dog, and how to brew my coffee. I just love to remember my first coffee in a Parisian cafe at age 16 with Grandpa, strong, espresso, with a sugar cube, and how the server was so very kind. I will always remember not what people do for me, nor what they say, but how they make me feel. I will always remember my first love, how and where it happened, the sound of his name, and how he held me, and how scared we both were when blood gushed from me onto his parents' bed, them at a movie theater, and how embarrassed I was, yet how close it made us. I will always remember the feeling of being loved in that way for the very, very first time. Thank you. Beautiful. So I think we need to tap. Thank you. Um, yeah, we need to tap into our memories more, and I think writing certainly encourages us to tap into memories. Uh, my book, Writing for Bliss, comes with a journal. It's called Writing for Bliss Journal, and it has um, actually a lot of blank pages with prompts on top, which are, a lot of them are prompts on jogging our memories from our childhood, from things that have happened, and it's really a good cohesive way to practice our memories, because, you know, they say that our memory is like a muscle, uh, and if we use it, we, you know, tend to remember more. And uh, I know my memory is not very good very often. It's kind of frustrating, but I'm trying to, when I read a book, talk about it because I think that's supposed to help. But uh, that's a whole other subject. It's not about writing. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I I truly believe in, um, I write journals. Um, I've been writing since I was a kid. My, my mom, she kept a diary. She also kept a journal, which was separate because her diary was pretty much what she did on that day. Um, and uh, so I, uh, she passed away a long time ago, but I have a few of her diaries. And when I read them, because some are from when I was in high school, so it's like, oh, I forgot about that, you know. So, you know, she never cared. She always shared her diary. She didn't care, you know, was it like too personal? Her journal was a little bit more personal, and I didn't. Um, uh, I just kind of held on to it so no one else would uh, would read it. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, just going back and reading something I wrote years ago, or um, 
you know, whether it was in a journal or a story or a poem, I I write a lot of poetry and just to kind of use it as an outlet. So I understand, and it's not always easy, even for writers, to put what they're, they think they're feeling or how they're feeling on paper. Um, so sometimes you do need that, that little prompt or little bit of, you know, just something um, that can help you put it out on paper. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just kind of, you know, I have a lot of students that come and they say, you know, I want to write my book, but I don't know where to start. I said, well, just start with yesterday, you know, just like write about what you did yesterday because very often things that we do in the present remind us of something in the past. And I think, was it Virginia Woolf that called that, uh, oh, she had it, she called it a special moment um, and in, in that, you know, you could be having an ice cream cone and suddenly it reminds you of an ice cream cone or an incident from your childhood. And so, yeah, it's really good to just stick in the present and see what, it, you know, what you're doing right now that reminds you of the past. That's one way to log into your memory bank. And, of course, yeah, just doing journaling prompts, that's a great idea. When you are thinking, um, so when students when students are asking you about writing and poetry, um, is there a particular um, style? Is there something that you start your students with first uh, in your workshops? How do you get them thinking um, writing poetry because I know you mentioned you you, you know they want to write something and you you tell them hey let's start with what you did yesterday um, but when they're thinking about you know yesterday and putting it together what what's some of the, the basic principles that they need to and should look out for when they are putting their, their thoughts together I write fiction not poetry poetry kind of scares me don't know why. Don't know why. I mean, you're still words. Um, so, um, so, so that, that's not something. So, I'm definitely very curious because we definitely will will definitely have people listening that would like to go into that particular area. So, where's some advice? Yeah, that's interesting. A lot of people are intimidated by poetry, probably because how we were taught it in school. You know. Uh, uh, a lot of what we were taught and a lot of the poetry we read was sort of inaccessible. We, it didn't resonate with us. It didn't mean anything. I think uh, free verse, which is what we call it today, kind of tells like a story or prose. A sure. uh, prose poem, for example, tells a story, and I think that's probably the easiest way to start writing poetry. Typically, the best thing to do is to start with an image or a feeling uh, and then just take it from there. Or, you know, even starting with an ode, if you, you know, an ode to my computer, you know, whatever, you know, like a dedication to something that you're familiar with, something that you love, something that you use a lot. Um, or a feeling, you know, if you're in love. And, you know, poetry survives on um, very close attention to details and all the senses that you use, the better it is. You know, if you've got 
Um, if you're that, that's why poet, poems and poets are usually very emotional because they feel and they see and they observe. You've got to be very observant to be a poet. You know, they could be looking at a house, you know, at a roof, um, and people might not see what they see, but they might see, you know, a crack in the foundation and or a crack in the roof, and they might bring that into some other, you know, it might be a metaphor for them for life, you know, the crack in the foundation, crack in the roof. And so it's about being observant, um, and whatever moves you is just a good way to start a feeling or an image. Um, Do you I don't mean to interrupt, but I was just wondering. Um, I know that sometimes people think that um, if it doesn't rhyme, it's not a poem. So, <laughs> I mean, when you get students entering thinking that, oh, i got to make sure that, you know, they're looking at format and um, rhyming rather than just, you know, like, like we do, free verse. I mean, that's one of my big ones. Um, I do that myself. You know, whatever I see or feel or don't feel and put it on paper, um, it's kind of like um, painting a picture of your soul. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I, I've heard people say, oh, well, that's not poetry. It doesn't rhyme. <laughs> do you get some students that are um, think that, oh, I have to make sure everything rhyme? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a good mix, and I think the – uh, it's very. It's, first, first of all, I'll start by saying that it's kind of old-fashioned to rhyme poetry. It's very rare that you know contemporary poets rhyme unless you know they intentionally set out to do so. But it's not a requirement today to rhyme your poetry. So uh, I think I think more than anything, it's old-fashioned. Although I um, I tried to make a rhyming poem not too long ago, and it was hard. I mean, yeah. It's hard, and the reason it's hard is sometimes it just doesn't make sense. Like I think, just the the focus that you're taking to find a word that rhymes kind of interferes. With, for me, interferes with the creativity and the feeling that I'm trying to portray. You know. So exactly. I don't answer your question, but <laughs> yeah. No. It, yeah. No. It, it did. I know it's old fashioned and. Uh, you know, and they, you know, they think of other things. But I mean, Whitman is is one of my favorites, um, and uh, you know, and I I still get inspired reading his work, and of course, um, contemporary poets and poets of all ages and whatever I can read. I, um, but I, I I know there are some people like they just think, oh, that's just too hard. I mean, I remember in in high school when you had to write a certain amount with stanzas or you were writing haikus or whatever else they were trying to teach you, more like a format rather than the actual expression behind the poem. Right, exactly, yeah. Well, I mean, there's different forms, and that's kind of not old-fashioned, like, you know, the sonnets and the sestinas. I mean, those those are still taught in, in, you know, in, in creative writing programs, and, uh, you know, some people still like really sticking to them or doing them occasionally, but uh, I'm more of a free verse writer, because I guess because I'm primarily a memoirist, which is prose, I feel more comfortable in that genre, but it would be yeah. fun, I guess, at one point, you know, experimenting with the different types, 
um, I think, you know, um, I just think because poetry is so intimidating to some people even to read that, you know, I'm, I always, I like, as a writer, love having an audience, so why not write something that resonates with people and that people understand? Otherwise, it just sounds like, you know, it sounds like it's something for me, uh, if you will. Yeah. I like influencing people with my words, and I think if you write, you know, accessible poetry, you have more of a chance of doing that. Definitely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, but, yeah, Whitman's great. I mean, all, a lot of the old, you know, poets are, I mean, there's so many of them are wonderful and just inspiring, just to be inspired. And, of course, I always tell my students, if you want to be a poet, you need to read a lot of poetry because that's how we learn. We can't just yeah. write in a human. I'm always amazed. When I'm teaching and I ask, okay, what's your favorite memoirist or what's your favorite poet? People are like, oh, I don't read that. I'm like, well, then I don't know how you think you're a writer. Well, I only read fiction. I said, well, maybe you should write fiction, you know. So it's interesting to me. Um, so, yeah, if you want to write poetry, you need to read a lot for yeah. sure. Yeah. It's so funny you say that. Um, thank you for your advice. Um, we often... We often hear that as well, and we we give that advice too. Um, when people say, "Oh, I've never, you know, I really want to write, you know, let's just, you know, I don't know, um, supernatural," and it's like, "Well, have you have you read anything or watched anything super supernatural?" No, I haven't. <laughs> and it's like, well, <laughs> you probably want to to understand um, a little bit better, right? And you want to kind of you know read more than one. Um, book on a, a book that's written in that particular way, just so you can understand um, how that um, how that translates uh, when you're writing that type of uh, that type of book. So it's 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 really weird, right? Um, that you know that that people will say that and they haven't done the investigation to understand anything about that. So that thought that was interesting. Yeah, and I, it's, it's also people think that writing is easy. I mean, that's the other thing. It's like, oh, when I retire, I really want to write a book. I'm like, that's cool. But, you know, it's not just sitting down and writing a letter. I mean, it's hard work. We know it, right, as writers. But people oh, have yeah. this image, and it's like, oh, oh, you guys are so lucky. You're writers. You just get to sit around and just write. Which, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> You know, we have to work at what we do, and we get writer's block, and we have, you know, a life that we, you know, things that we have to do in addition to writing, and yeah, it's really interesting, the image that writers have, um, but then when they start, they sit down and write, they go, oh, yeah, God, it's not as easy as I thought. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like we're in a, a cabin with a a cigar in one hand and a typewriter in the other hand, like they show on TV all the time. That's not it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Was it Hemingway? One of the writers said something about nothing much to writing except, you know, sitting down and putting, you know, putting your arm out and bleeding, you know, it's like, it's hard. <laughs> it is. Yep. Uh, yeah. So one of the things that we definitely do like to ask our uh, our authors uh, on the show, what's next? What's next for you? 
Uh, do you have <laughs> do you have something unwritten that you're working on? Do you have something unfinished that you just need to put a polishing to? Uh, so what's next for you? Well, I'm always writing, you know, a lot of essays, so that's kind of ongoing. Uh, I have a book that I wrote during the pandemic uh, called Hummingbird, and I'm waiting for my publisher to be able to fit it into his schedule. It's another memoir, and so I'm doing the final touches on that, and I'm kind of superstitious to talk about it until it's out there, so I won't be staring at that right now. But I would like to finish with a poem from um, my latest poetry book, if there's time for that. That is wonderful. That is wonderful, yes. Um, I, I understand about that. I just kind of talk about my work in the abstract uh, but I do like to let uh, you know listeners know, hey, something else is coming out. I'm still thinking about something, so stay oh. tuned. So, yes. So, D- Diana, thank you so much for being a part of the show today. Uh, we definitely want to let all of our listeners know that you can find Diana's work uh, if you go to our Be Your, Be our Guest uh, area. Yeah, and show. it's also Diana. At dianarab.com is my uh, website, and all my work is also shown there. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, wonderful. So please, please uh, check out Diana's website and all of her work there. Thank you so very much for being on our show tonight. Okay, you're very welcome. Have a nice day. You as well. Be well. Bye-bye. All right. Great show with Diana. Love her work and definitely want uh, those to the, those listeners to really go out and uh, understand Diana's work and where um, where you can purchase her work. Uh, so, Amy, I'm excited. We have another another guest on the show tonight. Yes, we do. Yes, yes. So, Trevor Trevor Hauser is um, on. Um, Trevor, I'm here. How are you? I'm good. It's really great to be here. Great, great well, to have you. Thank you for being on our show. Yes. So excited. So, so Trevor, tell us, um, tell the listeners a little bit about you. Yeah. So um, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and then you know. Moved to a bunch of different cities over the course of many years, and then I'm back in the Pacific Northwest. So uh, I live in Seattle with my family. Um, I work in advertising as a creative. I've been doing that for about 12 years. Um, as far as writing, um, which I do in my in my uh, with advertising too, um, I, I think I kind of got into it at an early age. You know, I really like to write. I wrote stories. Uh, in school, and then I would send them around to classmates at lunch. And I remember if I if I got five people that liked it, I would call it a New York Times bestseller. Um, <laughs> I love that. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, that's so, great. Yeah, what's that? I said that's great. I love that. Yeah. I used to send my stories too, but I never thought about doing it that way. <laughs> you just have to do it yourself. If they won't do it, you do it yourself. Um, so, yeah, and then, you know, I, I wrote for the newspaper in high school and college and um, and started publishing stories in my 20s with lit journals. 
and and uh, wrote my first novel in my late 20s, got an agent, um, and was really close to getting a big publisher on that first book. And I remember thinking, uh, well, I'm, you know, now I can move to France and just write novels for the rest of my life. And uh, but that did not did not go through. Um, and then the second book was like a little less close, and the third book was a little further away. And I think that's when my agent and I parted ways, mm-hmm. and my, my my wife and I we started our family, and my job got you know a little more serious. And um, for a couple of years, I just re- really didn't get to write. Um, and then you know it wasn't until recently, like four or five years ago, uh, I wrote a short story that I thought was just going to be a four or five page thing and, and turn into a, a novel. And that turned out to be my mm-hmm. debut novel, uh, Pacific. And that came out in 2021. And, uh, and then shortly thereafter, uh, finished my second book, The Prumont Method, which comes out this August. Wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. Go ahead, I Amy. Wonder which book, uh, I was just uh, the one that's coming out in August. Is that the one that you're promoting? Yeah, the Prumont method. Yes. So one of the things that um, we do have aspiring uh, writers, uh, and we also have aspiring um, authors who want or would like. An agent. So tell us about that experience. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny. I've actually had, I've actually got my two novels published, you know, after <laughs> post-agent. Um, but, of course, like early on, it was all about, I, I worked at Little Brown uh, right out of college in marketing there. And so you're surrounded by all of that excitement and um and I was friends with so many people that were going to become upcoming editors and uh, publicists, and 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 you get caught up in that. I really was hoping to, you know, I, I, of course I was going to write a novel that was going to go through Little Brown or one of those big publishers. Right. And um, I, I mean, I think I moved to New York for that reason, just to be around people like that who also wanted to do uh, things in, in that world. And um, and so the first thing I did, you know, I started uh, writing short stories first, and and then started trying to tackle a novel. And um, you know, you do a lot of research uh, as far as like trying to find an agent that's got, you know, that that seems to have your same taste or or, or same point of view on things. Um, and I. I didn't have like a, a reference or anything like that. I really just was sent sending this stuff cold uh, out to people and, and was getting some nice responses and some, you know, and I, you, know, you go for some of the big fish too and, I, and you would, don't get any response. Um, and I found a, a, a really uh, like an up and coming uh, agent um, and she really loved my work. And it was, it was great. I mean, it was my first book, and um, she really kind of pushed me to make it better. 
uh, and kind of and, and championed it. And there is something comforting about having an agent as you go through that process. It is kind of a harrowing process to, to do on your own to try and find a publisher. It's kind of reassuring. They kind of know the ropes. Um, but, yeah, no, there was plenty of people that said no, um, and I just kind of uh, I lucked out. I'm actually still friends with this, uh, with this agent, and we really just kind of felt like we weren't, you know, it just wasn't happening for us for whatever reason, and we parted ways very amicably. And she's been one of my biggest cheerleaders, actually, since these, uh, this book and, and the next book is coming out. So, um, so yeah, but it's, 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 a, it's a funny journey because, you know, I went through that to get an agent and then uh, I've been these last two books completely on my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Um, the the whole um, agent piece, I think, is a point of contention for some people. Um, and the reason I say that, you know, some people, they would just, you know, do whatever they need to do to get an agent. And then there's some that says, hey, you know what, no, thank you. I'm I'm good on my own. Um, you, you've done both. So, what, what do you think, you know, are the advantages of, I mean, I, I know that, you know, the, the, the agent can speak on your behalf. I, we, you know, I know that. But, like, what's some advantages or disadvantages that people should think about when they are trying to go either route? I, I think one of the great things, first of all, you have, you have someone by your side on the journey, right, mm-hmm. as an agent, which is great, especially if they're, they really love your work. It's, I mean, what writer doesn't love love somebody that loves their work and wants to help you? Get <laughs> um, so that's really fun, um, and and I think they get their their foot in the door in some places that probably you wouldn't be able to to get into. I mean, there there are certain places you just can't submit without representation. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the. The um, a negative would be that sometimes you need to skew uh, or think more about commercial uh, or, or think about like how it's going to sell and the marketability it becomes a much bigger conversation um, than when you're just if you're if you're going to a small publisher. Not that they don't want to sell books, obviously, but. I think they really are more interested in the vision of the writer. Um, and, uh, you know, that's kind of their top priority. And so I feel like you can do certain things with your, with your writing with a smaller publisher uh, without being, um, you know, kind of uh, lassoed into those, that, that bigger group. Um, that, you know, and that that's like that's a nice freedom. It, you know, I think there was there was a time where the bigger publishers were doing uh, some riskier work, but really now that's fallen to uh, a lot of the indie presses to do that, and so it's not a bad thing to be working with them. Mhm. Mhm. Thank you. I, I appreciate your sharing that. Uh, so let's move into your. Book. Let's move into your work. So, uh, tell us a little bit more uh, about your about your book. 
um, you can definitely, we definitely want you to read an excerpt um, just so you are, um, just so that our readers can connect with your writing style and also you as an author. So um, definitely want you to talk a little bit more about your, about your work. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, so this book is, um, it's, it's about a character, Roger Prumont, who is uh, sort of at a crossroads in his life. He's, um, his marriage is falling apart. His, his career is, uh, is melting down. And, and sort of in this chaos, he retreats into mathematics. He's sort of a, a math hobbyist. And in doing this, he kind of unwittingly uh, creates a formula which he thinks can predict when and where the next mass shooting will take place. Mm. And so he, he takes his formula out on the road to go uh, and test and see if it actually works. And that's kind of the jumping off point for the book. Da, da, da. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that's definitely a well-written um, you know, synopsis um, of the book because that that reading the back of that, you want to buy it, right? So so great great job on that, great job, uh, Amy. You, you yeah. took yourself off of um of off of mute. Yes, definitely. <laughs> I mm-hmm. look forward to reading that book. Are welcome to send it to me or have your uh, publicist send it to me so I can read and review it for you and have it ready by time it gets released. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, I would love to send it to you. I've got, I've got some copies I can send your way for sure. Great. Yes, that would be great. So if you would, um, um, so it sounds like someone is a social path. Well, well, he's mathematics, so not necessarily social path, but the person who is actually doing the shooting could be. But so t- read us a little, if, they, if you have an excerpt, um, would definitely love to hear the excerpt. Sure. Yeah, no, I'll just say, well, you know, quickly, like, you know, the idea for the book kind of came after the Parkland shooting, um, which was, you know, and there was a lot of shootings leading up to that, including the Las Vegas uh, shooting about a year prior to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I've got two kids, and, and you're thinking about, you know, the politics never seemed to really change on this stuff. So I was kind of, I was kind of thinking after hearing about this, you know, well, what, what are some other options that we might come up with to like prevent these things? And, um, mm-hmm. and then my writer brain kind of uh, kicked in and I was thinking, well, so what if a guy, what if some, some person could just, they came up with some, you know, mathematical way to figure out how to predict, you know, when these things would happen. And, I didn't want him to be famous or like a professor. I wanted to be like a normal guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and what? And then you start asking the question, like, what would the motivations be, and 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 how would he prove that it works? And would he tell his family, or could he tell his family? And so you, know, you start asking those questions, and it feels like it was pretty rich territory to mm-hmm. to write something. Um, and so that's kind of where this the whole uh, I guess the genesis of this. And um, so, yeah, so I can read, uh, I was going to read maybe from chapter five, which is he's sort of, uh, Roger Prumont is, is sort of explaining 
uh, his how this method works and and some of the things he does before uh, what he calls trigger events uh, before they happen. Shooter profiles, weapons, dates, weather, times of day, victim demographics, financial and job market trends, drug abuse and neurological disorders broken down by states, cities, and towns, various types of venue. Basically, all these things help the method to assess the likelihood of where the next mass shooting might occur. Other people have tried it, the CDC, some kids at Stanford, but mostly they're looking for symptoms. They're searching for behavioral patterns for the public or the police departments can be on the lookout for. The method's main purpose is to pinpoint the exact location of the next shooting, except it's incomplete. And in a way, it's hard to even explain, not in the traditional sense anyway. A report from the Congressional Research Service in 2013 defines a mass shooting as three or more killings in a single incident. So that's my criteria. For now, the best I seem to be able to get or be able to do is get a couple things right, like the day and the region, or the time and the state. And then if there's time, I improvise from there. I stay in that area up until the trigger event. The trigger event being what I call the exact moment the shooting begins. In any case, until that point, I walk the neighborhoods, I scout out the schools and the stadiums and the other soft targets. I see probabilities everywhere. I am a walking calculator. Here's the thing I do. Once I've analyzed the output and the method points me in whatever direction it points me in, I go to the middle of whatever town or city or backwater and just watch. Usually this is a park or square of some kind. Sometimes it's just Main Street. What I do is find some place where I'm out of the way enough to just stand or sit there and observe. I watch the people on their phones or leisurely getting in and out of their cars. I watch business people walk to lunch laughing. I watch policemen writing traffic tickets or just staring dumbly from their black and white cruisers. I stand there in the hot sun or the softly falling snow thinking I am the only one who knows. Nobody else has any idea in the slightest. Except, of course, for one other person, or sometimes maybe two, but maybe they don't even really know yet. It could be just a couple days away, although sometimes it's as long as two weeks out. Nevertheless, at some point in the, re in the near future, the routine will be disrupted, maybe even permanently. No one will walk. Someone will get, some won't get phone service. Many will stay home. A few might even be affected directly, their children perhaps, or their husband. Or maybe it will happen in that very spot where I'm standing, just under that elm or behind the courthouse. And perhaps there will be bodies like the bodies in Buffalo, the way they look broken and unreal, as if you'd taken one of those giant stuffed animals you went at the carnival and violently threw it down a flight of stairs. Then it just froze there forever. Their legs crossed unnaturally, their stuffing coming loose around the belly. Either way, the noise will be deafening, then silence, then cries and moans, then vigils and news vans, then maybe a statue or a plaque if it's truly horrific. But unlike Civil War battle sites, people tend to forget what happened in these places. They will become sacred only for a few. Then it will happen somewhere else. The noise followed by the cries and moans and necks bending unnaturally, etc., etc. One thing the method has never gotten right is the shooter. The name, that is. I've gotten the race. I've gotten the financial background, the weapons, the grievances but never an actual name. One would think getting the weapon right wouldn't be that difficult since so many of these things involve AR-15s, but the method has given me other guns too. 
the Mossberg 500 pump action used in Oxnard, the Winchester bolt action in West Mifflin. Of course, it doesn't always get that part right, like the time the method was convinced to base a machine gun as a probable weapon of choice, which is a rare belt-fed gun that was usually mounted on armored vehicles in World War II. I made some adjustments after that. I shot a gun once myself. I was in Vietnam. Not the war, obviously. It was vacation. It was just outside Saigon, which is now called Ho Chi Minh City, one of those unfortunate renamings like Yusuf Islam or Jefferson Starship. In any case, it was just before I got horribly sick from food poisoning and spent two days uh, in the hotel overlooking Benton Market. I was visiting a shooting range in the jungle complete with old Viet Cong bunkers and tunnels. You could shoot whatever, M16s, AK-47s, M60s, just 20 bucks a head. The guns were bolted down to big concrete blocks so no one cartoonishly lost control and sprayed a tour bus with 1,600 rounds per minute. What I remember most is how loud they were, loud in the way that you feel it in your colon. I didn't even shoot the M60 because it was being hogged by some teens from Wisconsin, but the M16 gave out plenty of noise and violently smacked the sand in the distance as I completely missed the target. The noise made me feel sick, actually. How did Charles Whitman do it for so long? Not hitting sand, but cars and skirts and thigh bones. I pretended, I pretended to have a good time, but all I could think about was dozens or even hundreds of young boys going at it with these things deep in the jungle and feeling nauseated and overwhelmed. No wonder they did heroin. No wonder they listened to the carpenters. Surprisingly, I come from a gun family. My dad and my brothers hunt birds. My grandparents shot at deer and elk together, then smoked and drank in great canvas tents along the Kulikan. Everyone in my family going back to somewhere in the Netherlands shot at things to smoke and grill, perhaps in Hergenbosch or Udawater. Anyway, it was a rite of passage. My dad put, took me out one morning when I was nine years old. He shot at a flock just passing over a cornfield we hid in. The smell of spent shells cut through the funk of wet autumn leaves. Then he smiled. He sent our dog into the freezing water. When he came back with a dead duck in his mouth, I told my dad my, my feet hurt from the cold, and he took me back to the car. He turned on the heat and rolled his eyes when I asked how much longer. There's a 39% chance his love for me dropped by almost half that day. But math is tricky when it comes to things like love. Do you know that moment when everything changes? Do you know that moment when the shark latches onto your leg and your future Thanksgivings become the thing of percentages? I know that moment. I know percentages. Wow. <laughs> that is extremely powerful. Um, did you, uh, I mean, do you have, like, a background in mathematics or analytical um, thinking like that? Did you have to do, a, sounds like you had to do a, a lot of research on weapons and, yes. I don't know, algorithms or whatever. I, I just wondered how you got to that point where you, I mean, I was, I'm, I'm kind of speechless. That was just amazing, and I can't wait to read that book. Okay. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny. Um, if you asked my high school math teacher, or if you told him that I had written a book that was centered around math, I think he might pass out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not my, is not my strong suit. Um, I think it's it's 
it's strange when I first started this book because I wanted to write about this subject and I was trying to find a way in um, that got me interested and didn't feel like um, territory that already had been used. And, um, and so I, I went into this, I, I, you know, when I started thinking about this as being a, a mathematical um, solution, I was writing the first few pages and really thinking, it was almost like a dare to myself, like how much further can you go before <laughs> you can't do it anymore? And um, I just did, I did a lot of research. I, um, I tried to, I tried to keep it um, interesting and, and mysterious without going into too many details where you could get too caught up in, in how it works exactly. Um, and, and really just got into like the, the history of mathematics and, and how something like this might work without getting too deep in the weeds on it. Um, because yeah, I mean, people say, you know, write what you know. And and I just was like, no, write about math and guns. (laughs) (laughs) I always tell people, I'm like, don't just write what you know, write what you want to know. You know, that way you're learning something from it. I I get that. I think it's so important because I think it made me um, curious. Uh, You know, as I was writing this, I was learning. And so that that to me kind of kept me really um, invested. Yeah. I, I get that. I'm, I'm working on a nonfiction historical book on my hometown, something that I've never ventured in. And it's like I'm learning so much more. It's like trying to decide what do I put in, what do I keep out, you know. Um, but, yeah, I understand, you know, diving into something and, and you're learning from it. Um, uh, you know, I, I know, people should never stop learning. If they stop and they just stop living. Agreed. Yes. No, I think it's it was a, an education for me, and I'd always been really curious about all this stuff. As I, you know, because you're reading these articles seemingly every day about these these shootings, and yeah. and just learning about the the history of of um, you know shootings in the U.S. and and just seeing how it used to be such a um, such a rare thing that people were shocked and surprised about. And I think we're still very sad and, and very upset and frustrated um, when these happen, but I don't think anybody's really surprised anymore. And that's kind of where we've gotten to, um, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I remember going to school, the, the worst thing that would happen to someone would get in a fist fight. You know, not not bring a knife or a gun to school and want to blow up the whole building or anything like that. So, um, and yes, when they happen, you're right. We get sad, um, and then we wait for the next one to happen. Yeah, yeah. And they seem to be a lot closer. They seem to be closer together these days. I mean, definitely. I mean, I remember just looking at the you know, reading about the, the you know, kind of the big one, the University of Texas with Charles Whitman um, and and how 
shocking that was to everybody that this, you know, could happen. And, um, and I just feel like, you know, even Columbine, and, but I feel like we've gotten to a new place where it's just, I mean, Las Vegas, um, they had worse yeah. casualties there than they had in some, you know, battles in Vietnam. So it's like, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, I know. I was, um, I live in upstate New York, so I'm only a couple hours from Buffalo. And, you know, they opened it, and some of the people that worked there and that were there that day um, went back to work. And, you know, every time, they said that every time, like, there's a loud noise in the store or the doors open, they automatically, like, get on, like, high alert. It's like they, you know, they have PTSD now. And um, this one woman, she was crying, and um, the newscaster asked her why she was, why she went back to work, um, if it, you know, ter- if it terrified her every day, and she said because she wasn't going to let that guy win. Yeah. Yeah. And that just really, you know, it's just like, you know, it was like, and I just felt for her. I mean, I remember. I mean, I wasn't there. I, I just saw it on the news and um, the governor uh, of New York is actually from Buffalo. So, you know, that kind of like, um, you know, brought it all all home. Yeah, well, I remember talking um, to my publisher about, you know, whether or not we want, so, you know, I, I wrote, this book before, um, or I was starting this book before the Buffalo shooting, mm-hmm. um, and I chose uh, I chose Buffalo just completely randomly as uh, as this, as one of these towns that had a fictional shooting because I'm, I'm talking about like there's there's all these different shootings that he's trying to chase down, and mm-hmm. um, and the the publisher was asking if or wanted to know, you know, did you want to, should we change anything like name or cities or anything, towns? And, and we thought about it and then we both agreed that these are happening so much now that the next Mm -hmm. town we pick could easily be the next one. Mm Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. Trevor, thank you so much for being on our show today. Um, Tell the audience how they can find uh, you. Yeah, so you can go to my site, um, uh, hauserfiction.com, H-O-U-S-E-R, fiction.com, or you can go to Unsolicited Press, and they also have uh, this book on pre-order and my previous novel, Pacific, as well. Thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Thank you for having me. This has been great. I really appreciate it. Sure, sure. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. Thank you all for listening to The After Show. I'm Mackenzie Stewart. And I'm Amy Shannon. Anything that you need to know about us is on our website, wetheaftershow.wixsite.com slash home. Join us again next time. Bye. Bye.